Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome back to the Crystal Night Show brought to you by Newsweek. Today's guest is Wendy Wallace. She is the Deputy Executive Director for the Democratic Governors Association. Welcome to the show, Wendy. Thank you so much for having me, Crystal. Absolutely. And it, be, it might be helpful if you can just open up and share with listeners, what is the Democratic Governors Association and what do you guys do? The name kind of already signifies much of what it is, but if you could just share with folks exactly what the DGA is and what do you guys do? Sure, I'm happy to do that. Um, the important thing to know is that the Democratic Governors Association is the only organization um, that is a national organization solely dedicated to electing Democrats as governor. Um, and so over the last, uh, we were founded in like the early 90s. So over that last sort of 30-ish years, the organization has evolved a ton. Um we were originally sort of just a, a place where people could um, go when they wanted information about governor's races and wanted to contribute to funding and all of that kind of stuff. Um, I always like to give a shout out to our compliance team, which does the Lord's work in knowing all of the different rules, um, what types of money can be utilized in each different state. Um, what the limits are, all of those things, what kind of vehicles we need. They manage something on the order of 80 different bank accounts for us just to kind of wow. keep us um, in in good legal standing in that way. Um, over, So the other thing I will say is that the DGA, unlike some of the federal committees which operate on a two-year cycle, we operate on a four-year cycle. So over the course of four years, every single gubernatorial um, seat in the country will be up for election. So I came in at the beginning of this four-year cycle in 2019, um, and 2022 is what we call uh, affectionately the big year. Um, our biggest years are always sort of the midterm year after the presidential election. So in 2019, there were three gubernatorial races. In 2020, there were 11. In 2021, there were two. And this year, in 2022, there will be 36. Oh, which my. will bring us to a grand total of 50. Yeah. Yeah. So I this would is love like... to have a word. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to have a word with someone about like maybe evening it out a little bit. But that's what we're doing. 36 races this year. <laughs> wow, that's a lot. You seem like you're exhausted and busy and ready for November 8th um, to get here so that you can really re-examine the map and see where, you know, the country has to go um, over the next couple of years. But speaking of, of the races, so this is basically like the Super Bowl year for gubernatorial races in the country. 
Um, you mentioned that there are 36 races that are happening, and I'm sure um, you probably think every race is important and equal to the Democratic map. But we hear a lot about um, gubernatorial races in states like Georgia and states like Florida. But are there other key races, even though all of them are important, um, that folks should really be paying attention to and thinking about just at the, the, the gubernatorial level? Sure. So uh, one of the things I really love about um, gubernatorial races is places where we win that national nationally people don't think about Democrats winning. Um, so I'll talk about a couple of those first. Um, I want to sh- highlight Kansas. It is sort of a um, an office favorite for us. In 2018, we won the governorship with Governor Laura Kelly. And I think um, because people don't think of Kansas as a um, presidential swing state, which we can talk about those, we have plenty of those on the map um, Mm -hmm. also this year. We can talk about those in a minute, but I really think there's something important happening on the ground in Kansas. We have seen, obviously, earlier this summer, um, the abortion access ballot measure that happened during their primaries. Um, And Governor Kelly has done an amazing job of being sort of a common sense Democrat in a red state who has worked really hard to um, work with people across the aisle. She comes from the state legislature and has that background and those relationships, which I think made it a little easier. But she's also now been endorsed by three of her opponent's former bosses as he is um, the attorney general, a Republican attorney general. So it really just speaks to the bridges she's been able to build and the things she's been able to do on the ground in Kansas. And we really look forward to reelecting her. There is, um, you know, in, in a year like this, where the, some would say that the political winds are against us, she is, hanging on and the polling has been neck and neck and we really believe in her ability to win that one. So that's an exciting one. Um, Outside of another one outside that is like big for us is Maine. Um, For anyone who was paying attention, Paul LePage, the former governor of Maine, who is a two-term governor, um, that uh, governor, the current governor, Janet Mills, mm-hmm. beat in 2018. Um, he's back. He wants a rematch. Um, and we are more than happy to oblige that. Uh, governor Mills has been doing a great job in Maine. They um, had one of the highest vaccination rates in, in the continental U.S. during the pandemic. A lot of people I know um, escaped to Maine. <laughs> there were there were um, big movements of people moving into Maine. And um, she has been really great for the state, expanded Medicaid and, you know, has really seen job growth and and things like that over her tenure. Um, And so we're excited to, you know, get that rematch underway and hopefully have a victorious Governor Janet Mills um, continuing among our ranks over the next four years. Got it. Got it. Um, Yeah. Happy to happy to dig in on any other any other places, um, but I think there's a lot of places on the map that do get a lot of attention. But I definitely wanted to highlight those. Yeah, I, I'd like you to dig into some of the races where 
incumbents are term limited. So I'm thinking about states like um, Arkansas or um, Maryland. And it's a wide open race, meaning, you know, either new candidates or, or people who've run for office before are running again and just how that new energy um, into those particular states could either swing a state or, you know, keep it in the same, you know, within the same party. So could you speak about you could use those two races as an example of there are others. I think that's helpful as well, because really what I want to draw the line um, for folks is how, you know, the gubernatorial races really do play into the state legislative races. They play into the federal races that all are happening across this country. And really, if we see the country tilt or shift towards a more democratic um, governorship, what does that mean for the, the, the uh, you know, the, the country on the whole? And what, what does it mean? What could it mean for the electorate on the whole? When we talk about issues like, you know, Medicaid expansion, like, you know, gun reform, a lot of these big things that governors absolutely have influence over. Yeah. Um, so I will um, definitely jump into Maryland and Arkansas, and I will add one more um, Oregon. Mm hmm where we also have a term limit democratic governor. I mean, I think, so I'll start with Arkansas, which is um, interestingly enough where my family is and where I was born. Mm. A lot of people don't know that about I me. I didn't know that. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it is close to my heart. Definitely. Um, and I think one of the things that's interesting about this race is it's sort of old guard versus like new opportunity, right? It's Dr. Chris Jones, who is, you know, has accomplishments a mile long. He is an actual physicist that like actually worked for NASA. He is a, a reverend. He like, he has sort of done it all and is taking this moment to, um, to try to give back to Arkansas, a place where he grew up and he feel like has given him a lot. Um, and so you've got this sort of political newcomer against Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who could not be more political establishment if she tried, right? Her father was the governor of Arkansas. She was in the Trump administration. She is just steeped in sort of Republican politics of mm -hmm. all shades. Um, and so one of the things that I think is about this race that is super interesting is not only do you have the first ever black Democratic gubernatorial candidate in a state, but also it is like an opportunity, like anyone who's ever spoken to Chris or heard him speak, he excites people in the room, mm -hmm. right? Like I... I know what it's like to go into a room of Democratic donors and say, like, and now we want to talk to you about Arkansas. Like, no one's doom, interested. Doom, doom. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's like, actually, insert, like, the majority of Southern right. states, like, we've all been there, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think this is at the very least an opportunity to galvanize people, to get them interested, to make them believe that this is something that we can accomplish. And I think, you know, Dr. Jones is the perfect, you know, sort of person to get this going. And, you know, I am a firm believer in, uh, in starting something, you have to start somewhere, right? Like I always say to people, 
you know, a lot of times people ask me like, I want to find the next Stacey Abrams. And I'm like, well, which version of Stacey Abrams are you looking for? Right. Are you looking for 2011 Stacey Abrams? Or are you looking for 2017 Stacey Abrams? Because 2017 version is a lot harder to find. The 2011 version, if you want to invest and do the work and be dedicated and help them grow is a lot easier to accomplish. And I think, um, we are somewhere in the middle of those with uh, Dr. Jones, and it is an incredible opportunity. And I am so excited to see um, how the impact that he is going to have on the people of Arkansas. I think he is giving them something to get excited about and something to vote for, um, which is something that's often missing. Yeah. Um, okay, Maryland. I think Maryland is like a is a very different example. Absolutely. Polar opposite. Polar opposite, some might say, um, because it is, you know, I, I mean, I am based in D.C. and people, political people in D.C., they feel a way about Maryland. Yep. Right. Because they see it as this very blue state that has had a Republican governor now for for eight years. Mm-hmm. And they want it back. Like it is, it's, it's <laughs> ours. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's ours. Like give it to us. Why right. don't we have it? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's been like an interesting transformation. We had a huge primary on both sides because it was this wide open seat. Um, and there was a lot of interest and we, again, got these two polar opposites um, on, uh, in terms of people coming through the primary. So we have, Wes Moore, again, incredibly accomplished and decorated, has sort of done it all from being a military veteran to a former CEO to um, of a nonprofit to a small business owner. He's like sort of done it all. Um, and then we have Dan Cox, who is like, you know, the the prototype of a like Trumpian MAGA Republican, mm-hmm. right, on the other side. So we've got these two extremes, and all the while, Democrats are like, we we want this back, it's ours. Um, I think in, in the same vein of, like, Westmore being somewhat a political newcomer and has never run for anything before, he has energized a base um, and an electorate that is fired up and ready to go. And the polling shows that, I mean, the, the disparity between him and Cox are, is sort of off the charts. And so I think it, it, and it's a history making race, right? Maryland has never had a black governor before. It will be a moment um, that will galvanize people. And I think he has done a really good job especially in the time since the primary, but even before of taking nothing for granted, working really hard, making sure that he is, you know, um, I always joke in the office that um, military candidates are some of the, the hardest to work for because they have a level of discipline that is like when their eyes pop open, Mm -hmm. you must be scheduling them and their, their staffs are always like, you know, he's he's squeezing things in and like we're back to back to back to back. Right. <laughs> Everything is like planned to the minute. Um, and he has really taken advantage of that 
type of aggressive scheduling so that he is meeting every constituency where they are. If it is a labor group, if it is an LGBTQ group, if they ask him to come, he is there. And so he is taking it very seriously. And I think we are going to see something very different than Maryland has seen in the past eight years um, under a more administration, which I am happy to say, I believe is going to be what happens for us. That's great. That's um, that's a great forecast and that um, you are anticipating a win, at least from him. And so just kind of going back to my other question, what is that? What what does a more um, democratic gubernatorial map in the country? What does that mean for the citizens of this country? Because what we're seeing right now at the federal level, we're seeing this a Supreme Court, at least in this session, push a lot of issues to states. And so people are like, oh, you know, call your congressman, call your senator. Yes, that's important. But also, did you vote down ballot? Did you vote at the gubernatorial level? And so can you just share, like, what does this mean when we think about all of the issues that this, just in this session of the Supreme Court that have taken place. So not just Roe versus Wade, but the, the gun, you know, law that, that was, I guess, overturned in the state of New York that now is, is, is precedent, um, climate change, um, all of the, even affirmative affirmative action. action, Yeah. That's heard a case on yesterday. Yeah. Right. For Harvard and university of North Carolina. Um, so these are all things that will ultimately, like like I said, go back to the states and go back to governors. So what does that mean for the country when we have a, a, a larger um, democratic gubernatorial map? Yeah, so here's one of the things that I always like to to say when I'm talking to people about this is that when you're a voter, you think of the government as top down, Right. The president, the Supreme Court, the Senate, the House, like these are where the decisions are being made top down. But when you actually get into the nitty gritty of it, you realize that it's kind of bottom up. Mm -hmm. So like a lot of the. The things that um, are being are happening policy wise um, and the Republicans are very good at this. I will give them their credit where it's due. They incubate and try out these policy things that they want to do in state legislatures. It is a place where people are paying less attention, like your average voter, right, isn't paying as much attention. The news doesn't cover it as much. You know, if Lindsey Graham or Mitch McConnell or somebody wants to put a bill on the floor, CNN, MSNBC, Fox, everybody's covering it, right? Oh, my God, did you see what they did today? If a federal level person, Mitch McConnell, um, you know, Kevin McCarthy, whoever wants to put something forward, everyone covers it. The news cameras are camped out at the Capitol. They're like within five minutes, somebody goes to the bathroom and there's a camera in their face saying, what do you think about this bill? Mm -hmm. If, you know, Richard Smith in the state ledge of like Iowa or Oklahoma or somebody puts forth the exact same bill, nobody covers. Right. Exactly. And and I think one of the things that's important is exactly to your point, like what is happening down ballot is crucial to what happens in people's lives. Like the thing that we are constantly saying um, is that your governor, 
your mayor even have a bigger impact on your day-to-day life than the president or the senators, right? And I think voters actually see the jobs differently, right? So we've been having a lot of conversations about ticket splitting or different things with the in the states where we have overlap with Senate races. Mm-hmm. But voters definitely see those jobs differently. They see a governor as a person who does have an impact on their life. And I think particularly in a post-2020 world where people lived through the pandemic and saw what governors were actually able to do um, from an administrative standpoint, they're feeling those differences even more acutely. Um, And it, it shows up in every single thing. You know, it is affirmative action, it's voting rights, it's, um, you know, abortion access, immigration, even Mm -hmm. in some cases, you know, Mm -hmm. so every single part of, of American life is impacted. And I think um, the more we get, as we go towards 2024, Mm -hmm. the voting piece is going to be incredibly important. I mean, we've got Republican opponents at this juncture who are like, I don't know if I'll accept the results of the election. Right. Yeah. I was literally about to bring that up about, you know, this this misinformation, disinformation around if a if an election is won outright by a particular party. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, look, I I am all for counting every single vote, making sure that people's voices are heard. I think for me, the frustration is we have candidates all over the map that are saying, whoa, whoa, slow up. I don't know if I'll accept the results. And then we've got candidates in Doug Mastriano in in Pennsylvania and Carrie Lake in Arizona. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe Tim Michaels in in Wisconsin, but the in Pennsylvania and Arizona for sure, they're saying like, look, if I'm in charge, Mm-hmm. and the results aren't looking how I think they should look, then I think it's okay to overturn them. Yeah. And, that's, you know, I, you know, not certifying presidential elections is a huge problem from a, like from the health of our democracy, like looking at the health of our democracy. So this is something that also voters need to think about as they are going into the voting booth. Absolutely. And, and, what you just said, you know, election deniers and even understanding in some states, you know, secretaries of state are elected. But in many states, secretaries of state are literally just appointed by the majority in the state legislative body. And so when you talked about issues that are getting through state legislative bodies, they ultimately have to go to the governor for his or her signature. So I'm thinking about like the bathroom bill that came up in North Carolina a few years ago. Um, Even thinking about um, critical race theory that clearly has been a major issue across this country. But, you know, it's been highlighted in Virginia, highlighted in Florida, even trying to ban textbooks. All of these things are things that ultimately go to the gubernatorial you know, go to the governor's office and desk. And I, I literally was thinking about um, the, the shooting that took place in Florida. And, um, and I can't remember the name of the school, but the jury Parkland. Parkland yes. The jury decided that, you know, there was one juror who said, 
I don't want to move forward with the death penalty. So because it, there was not a unanimous decision, um, they're, you know, going to give this 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 man um, life in prison without the pro- mm-hmm. opportunity of parole. But immediately after Governor DeSantis said, I'm going to go, I'm going to make sure that we change the um, rules at the state legislative body so that that can't happen again. And so those are things that the federal government doesn't have anything to do with it. That's literally a state's issue. And the governor, which DeSantis has already said, he has the opportunity to affect that. And so when we think about these types of issues that are coming up all across this country that's why voting for your governor, voting for your state legislative body, your, your member, is really important and it's, and it's critical. So can I just say a couple other things on sure. that? Mm-hmm. One, Pennsylvania is one of those states where the governor appoints the secretary of state. Mm-hmm. Um, and Doug Mastriano has already said he has a person in mind who will, you know, basically call the election the way that he sees fit. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is... For anybody who's listening who's in Pennsylvania, please, please, please read up on these people. Josh Shapiro is the current attorney general. He is the man for the job. Um, So that's one. And two, as we talked about, we touched a little bit on the Supreme Court earlier. Mm -hmm. States have their own Supreme Courts and governors in a lot of these states get to appoint Um, state Supreme Court justices. A lot of times they run on um, nonpartisan tickets. But I will just say Governor Cooper in uh, North Carolina had a vacancy on the state Supreme Court and appointed Justice Sherry Beasley, who Mm -hmm. that name may be familiar to some of you who pay attention to Senate races. Right. Um, He appointed her a few years ago. She had to run for that seat again in 2020 and lost by like 840 yeah. votes nail biter. I'm definitely not, not upset about that. Um, so a couple of things, one always vote all the way down ballot because Sherry Beasley could be the state Supreme court justice today. If we had done that. Um, and also that is the, the farm system for district courts, circuit courts, all of these things that feed into Supreme Court justices. So I think Democrats don't always do the best job, even though I love y'all, of um, paying attention to court races, state Supreme Courts, local judge races, all of that. But it really does matter. And you can't get Kentaji Brown Jackson or Sonia Sotomayor if we don't have good folks in some of these other places. Right. Basically so. in the pipeline so that when there is a Democratic president, he or she gets the opportunity to pull from that pipeline. Correct. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that that's 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 important to just remind people that, you know, down ballot is important. Every single race is important. But like you said, your your mayors, your state ledge members, your governor races really are critical and important. And so I want to talk about just runoffs because I was on a call earlier this week um, talking about the Georgia election and um, Mm -hmm. not only at the Senate level, but for this conversation, the gubernatorial level, um, you know, the, the race between the current governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, 
and Stacey Abrams, who's the Democratic nominee, it was it was tight four years ago. And it looks like we're basically in the same fight again. This time, though, the, the difference between then and now is that Brian Kemp is likely even more emboldened by what's happened over the last four years, just the political climate, the election deniers, you know, Georgia being one of the states where former President Donald Trump attempted to steal votes or try to find votes, quote unquote, if you will. And so what does that race like? How will that race impact not only the state, but just election denying and and what can the DGA do about that when you have these highly contested gubernatorial races where you know Brian Kemp was the former secretary of state now he's governor and was able to you know by some accounts alter the results of the race based upon the position of power that he was in. Oh, you're really asking the hard questions. Um, That's why you're here, Wendy. That's why you're here. (laughs) That's why I'm here. I think, look, it is, um, I I wouldn't disagree with anything that you just said. Like, Brian Kemp was in a position of power last time around. He was, um, I think, as as Stacey Abrams said, he was both a contestant and the referee. Mm-hmm. And that shouldn't be allowed to happen. And so he was, you know, giving orders to his secretary of state's office about how to proceed in that moment. We don't have that happening this time around, but there is a lot of weight that comes with being the governor. Um, and I think also in addition to just like the power of incumbency type of stuff um, that I, I do think is at play here, um, we will see like an incredible shift, I mean, in just like how the election is administered. Now, don't forget in the four years since the last election, the rules have changed. Yep. This is the first time Georgians are, are voting under this these new statutes. And I think one thing that I think has been positive is that it does seem like the Abrams team, the Warnock team, everybody on the ground in Georgia has done a really good job about getting the word out. The early vote numbers, I think, indicate that people are paying attention. They are aware that their their votes are at risk. And um, my hope is that people are voting early so that they won't be in these hours long lines on Election Day and can still have their vote counted. Um, If you are in Georgia and you can hear this, please, uh, please do. Go vote early, vote by mail. Let's let's get this thing done. Um, I think we we're it remains to see what kind of um, bold action that Brian Kemp will take. I I won't you know pretend to be able to guess what his next chess move is, but I guarantee you there is one. Absolutely. So I I yeah I think that this is you know one state. I think we're going to see this in a number of states, even places where runoffs aren't an issue. Um, I do think this is one place that will not be decided on election night. We are prepared for the long haul um, in Georgia and across the country. So we are preparing for election season as um, as we're calling it in the office. Got it. So out of the 36 races that are actively happening, 
there are obviously some that are, you know, leaning Republican. There are also some that lean Democrat. How many wins mm-hmm. are is the DGA anticipating of the races? And, and those numbers may not be exact, of course, because, mm-hmm. you know, yep. we never know. Things change and things can alter an election. Yeah. So I'm glad you asked. Um, so we are thinking... Historically, obviously, history is not kind of on our side on this. Historically, though, in the first term of a president, the midterm that happens in the first term, Mm -hmm. usually the party in power loses a net of six seats. Mm. So you may pick up a couple, you may lose a few, but you'll have a net of six. And so we think we can probably do a little better than history. So for us, a good night is uh, a net of losing three to four seats. Okay. I think we we are feeling good about Maryland. We're feeling good about Massachusetts. Those are both pickups. Um, and so I think those will sort of offset losses in some other places for us. But if we can keep the losses to three to four seats, that will be you know, beating history and will be good for us. Got it. Okay. And then what about any pickups? Well, you talked about the pickup in Maryland. Are there any others that are just contested that are really close, maybe too close to call that, you know, people should just be on the lookout for? So I think the other race that I would say, obviously Georgia falls into this pickup category. And the other one I would say is Arizona. Mm -hmm. Um, Arizona is an open seat this time around, um, which makes it much more of a jump ball than say a a Georgia. Um, And the races is really tight and, you know, it is, it's tough. Arizona is uh, I think Democrats, again, like the, the sentiment is, Arizona sort of coming our way. Like we've been working really hard on it um, and really trying to cultivate the electorate there mm-hmm. over the past, I would say decade. We've seen some success at the Senate level um, with Senator Kelly and Senator um, Cinema. Mm-hmm. And so the real question is like in a, in a midterm year when, you know, the environment is sort of against us, like, can we make, make that jump at the gubernatorial level. And, you know, I hope so, but it is, it's very tight and I think it could go either way. Got it. Got it. Okay. Well, that's a good, I think Wendy, you know, that's a good forecast into what voters can anticipate or should expect. Are there any other things that, you know, you want to share with the listeners just about the DGA, just about gubernatorial races as we're, you know, days out, if not, by the time folks hear this conversation, the election has already been decided. So I think the the other thing is sort of two categories. One, I want to talk about Oregon, but I'll come back to that. Sure. Two, I want to like just do a minute on presidential swing states, which I would, for the purposes of this, will categorize as Nevada, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. I think... For us in this moment, and we all of those are incumbents for us, we feel 
really strongly that we would like to hold them all. We have been working with their teams. All of our incumbents who are up this year, we've been working with their teams since I got to the DGA in 2019. We were like, re-election starts at day one. That was before we knew we were going to be in a global pandemic. But um, we we really wanted to make sure that they were in the best possible position to win, regardless of how the presidential election turned out. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, we we know the history like that is our job. Um, so President Biden winning on election night in 2020 was great for the country, but it was it set up the task ahead of us as something even more difficult. Um, that being said, we rolled up our sleeves and we we got to it. And I think every single team in those states has done a really great job of capitalizing on moments that have, have been good for them, highlighting the accomplishments of their of their governor. And I really do believe, as we talked about before with election deniers and who gets to, you know, pick the secretary of state and all of those things. Um, this is, you know, I, I don't like to be like a dramatic sort of like the sky is falling person, but I do feel like, you know, a lot of presidential elections come down to Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Absolutely. And I think Nevada has been a, a swing state in recent presidential cycles. And so the idea of losing those, um, gubernatorial seats, particularly to the people that we are up against. Like yeah. Michigan has had Republican governors. You know, I saw this. There was, there's people really love, they both love Gretchen Whitmer and love to hate her. So there's a ton of traffic. There's a ton right. of Governor Whitmer traffic on the, on the internet. Um, but I did see this thing the other day that was debunking the idea that like Democrats have driven Michigan into the ground or whatever. And it's just like a graphic that shows going back to like the early nineties, like how many of those years Republicans were in charge, like Mm -hmm. most of them is the answer. And I, but I, I would argue that those were different times and different Republicans than what we are entering into and what we are seeing now. Um, Basically like the Republicans of the nineties are not the Republicans of the, the the Trump party right now. I mean, it's, it's not even compare. Right. Yeah. And, and so we really are in like this existential moment. Right. And so if we are heading into another presidential election, what does that look like Mm -hmm. to have these Republican opponents overseeing um, those elections? And I think given the way that 2020 went, you know, those were, incredibly difficult times and the election administration that had to go on in the middle of the height of the pandemic, like it was, you know, it it was a Herculean task for people to take on. And I don't know what 2024 will bring, hopefully nothing even approaching that, but, you know, it is important for us to be able to trust in our functioning democracy. So that's all on the line, you know, well, let, let me, before you jump to Oregon, I want to I want to go back to something that you said that I hope folks really kind of pick up on. The outcome of the races in 2022 will absolutely impact 
the presidential race in 2024. And the way that you framed it was, you know, if, and we can just, we can stay on Michigan. If, if, you know, um, Whitmer wins, what does that mean when, you know, for the administration of the election or the, you know, the outcome of the election in that state in, in another two years, particularly when you have a lot of election deniers and they're not just in, you know, democratic states, they're in Republican states, they're all over the country, but really this mm -hmm. is kind of the prelude to what could actually happen based upon the leadership in these states. And I love that you highlighted that Wendy. And I just wanted you, if you could just double down on that really quickly because I don't know, I don't know that folks really understand that the gubernatorial races in 2022 will absolutely affect the presidential race in 2024. Yeah, I mean, I staying with the Michigan example, I think many people saw, and this goes to your earlier point, Crystal, about um, how it impacts, how down, down ballot race results impact, you know, everyone's lives. I think one of the things we saw in Michigan in 2020 was at a state legislative level, right, people who were election deniers trying to not certify the electoral votes coming from Michigan, which then needed to be certified at the federal level. Right. And so there was this, you know, this whole holdup. And I think when you have and we had a trifecta of Democratic leadership in the statewide, we had a Democratic AG, a Democratic Secretary of State and a Democratic governor, mm -hmm. even though we didn't have democratic control of the the state house and the state senate right like and we had a democratic lean on the state supreme court mm -hmm. so all of these things had to come into play in order to get michigan's electoral votes certified enough to go to the federal level to then have them certified with the other states mm -hmm. The risk of breakdown there is so huge, I can't even really quantify it because if one of those pieces right. is not in place, then we risk, you know, there there was a whole plot to do false elect send false electors. Like all of those things could have come true if we had a different, um, if the leadership of the state looked different. And so, yeah, I mean, I just can't stress enough. I think we are in a moment where your vote is crucial mm -hmm. and really trying to weigh the consequences of the vote is crucial. Right. Yeah. I mean, and, and it's, it's almost scary to think that all of that happened under democratic leadership so imagine, like you right. said, if one piece was away where maybe there was a Republican AG in that state or even if it was a Republican governor, then the votes may not have gone to, you know, up to the federal level to be certified and that, you know, the president is the rightful president. And so that's why I just wanted you to kind of close that circle. And you did like and I'm glad that you rounded out the map for us. So it's not just, you know, it wasn't just that the, the governor was a Democrat, but the AG and all of these other pieces of the puzzle, they just so happen to align. But if one of them is out of place, it really could mean anarchy in many of these states, particularly in a state like Michigan, where people where there was a failed plot to kidnap her as well, which is even wild. Like and execute. 
and execute. I'm sorry. Right. The, the plot was to kidnap her and execute her. Yeah. Which is just absolutely crazy, um, considering what, you know, has happened right. even recently with Speaker Pelosi and her husband, um, you know, just violence against our political leadership. Um, but at whatever level um, is it just should have no place in our democracy. And so but this really goes back to why this level of government really is critical and it is important. Um, but I don't want to I know you also wanted to bring up Oregon, that example as well. So I don't want to, you know, get you off too oh, much. <laughs> thank you. I uh, the one thing I wanted to say about Oregon it's sort of in the category of states that don't always get a lot of attention, but people also think of as being incredibly blue. We are in a very unique situation there where there's a three-way race. And usually when there's a three-way race, it's like a, an independent who's like, you know, kind of picking up one to two percent, maybe three percent on the outside. They're like not very well funded. They're just sort of there. Um, that is not the case in Oregon. Um, so the Democratic candidate is Tina Kotek. Um, the Republican candidate is Christine Drazen. And then there is a woman named Betsy Johnson, who is a very strong, very well funded independent candidate who is taking up a significant amount of um, the the electorate. And so it has created a situation where both the Democratic side and the Republican side are trying to pull their votes back from this independent candidate. Um, and it is it is definitely going to be one to watch. I think the the um, numbers that we are seeing out of there are very tight mm -hmm. and, you know, we are doing everything that we can to make sure that Tina Kotek is the next governor of Oregon. Um, but I would not be surprised um, if some, you know, if a result went another way. And I think um, for us, we, we are hopeful, but um, that is definitely a race to watch that I don't think is on most people's radar. Got it. Got it. Okay. Well, that's helpful. Um, I think we've had yeah. a really great conversation about all of the gubernatorial races that are happening um, this cycle this year. And I said this at the top of the call, but, you know, the way that you've explained the map and, and how governors are elected in this country, this is really the Super Bowl year for gubernatorial races and Everything that happens this year really does lead into 2024. And so, Wendy, I just want to thank you for taking the time to share with our listeners today about what the Democratic Governor Association DGA does and how these races do impact every single citizen's day to day life, but also how it could ultimately impact the federal races that are to come. Um, so I just want to say thank you again, and I hope you'll come back and, and share with us even more, um, even after the election results are out, about how your predictions either came true or, um, you know, surpassed your expectations. I'm just going to be I'm going to be hopeful and say that we will win more than what we're anticipating. Um, but I'm looking forward to November 8th and, and what happens. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I am happy to come back anytime. I would love to come back and talk about 
exceeding the expectations that I set here. Um, I've always been a firm believer in under promising and over delivering. So that is what I'm going to go back to work on right now. And I'm happy to come back and talk about it um, anytime. All right. Well, thank you so much. Again, this has been Wendy Wallace with the Democratic Governors Association. And you've been listening to The Crystal Knight Show brought to you by Newsweek. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.